his experience and how the Lord used that in uh, ways surprisingly that uh, have resulted in wonderful spiritual aspirations that I think we can all benefit by. So in the meantime, um, I'd like to share with you a little bit of my experience that I had just yesterday, and I'm going to uh, just fill you in. And we're going to read from verse 4 to uh, verse 12, rather, to 20. Galatians 4, verse 12 to 20. <clears throat> Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did not wrong me. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His precious Word. I have something to say to you. If you don't know the book of Galatians, if you're not caught up, this section seems a little isolated from the, from the book. So it's important that we put it in the context of what the book is all about. And I think Paul expresses his heart in the book of Galatians how caring he is for the, is for the Galatian people. And here is just another one of the examples where Paul is worried about what direction they are being pulled in and his desire is for them to not go that route and he's trying to remind them of certain things and in this context here this could be one of the probably the most gripping portion of the book of Galatians as far as Paul's heart for them is concerned so he says in verse 12 brothers i entreat you or i beg you become as i am for i also have become as you are, you did me no wrong. What does he mean by this? This can be a confusing statement. What does he mean by this? Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Well, in Acts twenty six twenty nine, Paul says to King Agrippa, who he's witnessing the gospel to, and he says to Agrippa, I know you know these things. I know you know about the prophets. These things weren't done in a corner. They weren't done secretively. They were open and you, un- you know about it. And Agrippa says, what do you think in such a short time you're going to get me converted? Paul says these words, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am except these chains. I wish that all that are listening to me, just what a heart that Paul has. Don't you wish that people would listen to you when you're giving the gospel, your family members, your loved ones, your neighbors, or whoever that may be? Paul says, my hope is that not only you, but all of you, whoever they are, the the jurors that were there, all of the aristocrats that were listening to Paul, he's saying, I wish... 
you have what I have, except for these chains. Wow, what a heart he had, didn't he? For the people around him, even the king of Agrippa's. And he was truly fulfilling what the Lord has said. You're a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the children of Israel and kings in the Gentiles. So here he is before Agrippa. But there it is, that, that expression of, I wish you would be like me. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. I'm like you were, and now I want you to be like I am. I too was a practicing Judaistic person. I was under the law. I kept the law. But now I've been liberated. Not that I'm lawless. I'm still under the law of Christ. He says in the sixth chapter about fulfilling the law of Christ or what is the law of Christ. So being free from the law doesn't mean we don't keep the Ten Commandments or that we don't obey the Scriptures. But what he meant is the things that were uh, shadows of the good things that were to come, the circumcision, the feast-keeping, the holy days, the Sabbath, and all of those things are the things that he's hoping that they would be liberated from to enjoy the ministry that comes from Christ. Religious people try to get their religious soul fed by observations, by a regimented lifestyle, by doing this or that. Paul's desire is, I want you to be profited by Christ. I want you to know who is the true law liberator. Christ Himself can bring you out of the Egypt of bondage and give you tremendous liberty. I became like you so you could become like me. You know, elsewhere Paul says, let's look at uh, Romans 9, if we could get that up on the screen, um, um, Justin. Here's another example of Paul's unselfishness. This is Romans 9, 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, verse 3, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Just This is one of the most amazing statements of unselfishness and sacrifice. Paul's saying, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Who in their right mind could say that? It has to be one of those kind of a euphemistic sayings that this is how much I care for you. I don't want to see you perish. I want to see you get right with a holy God. I want you to be saved. He says elsewhere in chapter 10 and 1 in Romans, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So much so that he's saying, I care for my brothers in the flesh and I would be willing even to be cut off from Christ for your benefit. That's a real soul winner. That's a real man that's out and out for the things of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.22. This is the heart of Paul as well that I think matches with what we're reading here in verse 12. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And in that context, he says, to the Jew I became like the Jew. To the Gentile I became as a Gentile. That's when he says, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Sometimes we have to get out of our comfort zone to minister to people. Sometimes I got to become like a, 
uh, a Muslim in a way so I can win a Muslim or a Hindu to win a Hindu or a person of another culture or another lifestyle. Somebody that's unlike me, I need to be more like them so that they can become more like the Christ in me that I want them to know about and come to know in faith. Verse 13, Paul says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. You know, I hadn't really thought of this verse this way as the, as it, the way it reads here in verse 13. It was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Hmm. I thought Paul went there and as he was there, he had this bodily ailment. I didn't think of it, well, because of his bodily ailment, he went there. Commentators have all kinds of ideas of what Paul could mean here. My best guess would be that Paul is saying that I was injured en route of missions and because of my injury I had to be stepping aside, so to speak. I came to your territory, which may have been the closest to where he had sustained a possible injury, sickness, infirmity. We'll talk about that in a second. And you happen to be the people that I came to and I ministered the word to. It's tough to minister when you're sick having a bodily ailment. He must have received this injury in in a nearby area that made him have to step aside and go to the closest place as sort of like an infirmary for himself. But when he went there with this bodily ailment, he didn't go just for physical relief. He went there to unleash the gospel to them as well. You might wonder what could this ailment have been? And again, commentators, because we don't know anything more than what the Bible tells us, we might learn something from extra biblical material possibly, or culture, background, and so on. But it still can be a wild guess, and some of those guesses have been that he may have had malaria, he could have had epilepsy, he may have had conjunctivitis, is that the right way to pronounce that, uh, Josiah? Um, this eye ailment, because he talks about them gouging out their eyes for his sake. So some think, I've, I've always thought that because when he says, he'll say right after in, in the sixth chapter that I, you see how large of letters I have written to you. Why would Paul have written with such large letters? Maybe because his vision wasn't so good. Maybe he had an injury to his eye that he could not decipher his own handwriting if it was written in small letters. Well, anyway... It's only guesswork here and it doesn't really matter. The real point is that Paul said, I came to you because of a bodily ailment that I have. What is he saying here? This is how much I cared for you. He's going to tell us later that he cares for them like a a pregnant woman does for the child in the womb. I came with a bodily ailment. Where did he get these bodily ailments? In the 6th chapter, verse 17, he says, I bear in my body the brand marks of the Lord Jesus. What would those brand marks have been the physical injuries that he sustained in his ministry? That's not so common in our days. We do read of them. I was just reading about uh, a brother had sent me something about a a, 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 a pastor uh, evangelist in China and how he was treated and put into jail for 18 years and they made him work in the cesspool 
for years. And at first, he grumbled about it. He was angry. He said, where is God? He thought that the Lord forgot about him. He lost, so to speak, the luster of his faith. And then the Lord awoke him. And he began to turn the cesspool into a garden. And he's, and they have pictures of him raising his hand, standing in cesspool muck up to his thighs and having to work there all day. That was his job that was assigned to him as a punishment because he was a Christian telling the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Look at these verses where Paul describes something about his travels in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning, yes, at verse uh, 23, yeah. Paul is comparing himself to the others or contrasting himself with others. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman right now. That's what he's saying. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Keep going. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. No wonder Paul says that he was filling up that which was behind of the afflictions of Christ for his body's sake. What an example. I want you to be like me as I became like you. You know, America had a great awakening back in 1739 and 40. There was a man named George Whitfield, only 25 years old, came to America and took America by storm. Whitfield's farewell sermon on Boston Common drew as many as 23,000 people. They say that was the largest crowd of people at that time ever in any one location. The city of Boston at that time had only 17,000 people. 23,000 came out to hear him at the Boston Common. A number of ministers got converted. Ministers who were practicing Christian religion got converted under the preaching of the gospel of Brother Whitfield. He preached at Harvard in the neighborhood. He preached at New Haven, Yale, as we know it as Yale now. At Harvard, he was reported that the college is entirely changed. The students are full of God, it was said. Yet Harvard's leading professors later wrote a pamphlet denouncing Whitfield. Brutal mobs sometimes attacked him and his followers, maiming people and stripping women naked. Whitfield received three letters with death threats, and once he was stoned and until he nearly died. An attack by hundreds and hundreds of papists who cursed and wounded him severely and smashed his portable pulpit. On various occasions, a woman assaulted Whitfield with scissors and a pistol in her teeth. Stones and dead cats were thrown at him. A man almost killed him with a brass-headed cane. Another climbed a tree to urinate on him while he was preaching. 
Hmm. You want to be a preacher? You want to go back in these days? It could be down the road. I don't know. It could be down the road for all of us as Christians. Nevertheless, this gives you a little idea of what Paul's talking about, of the kinds of things that he went through. Even Whitfield himself was wounded with this cane, and he had been uh, bruised for the rest of his life. He, he, he had like, it was cross-eyed from that point on. His face was, uh, you could say, disfigured from it. He had to live with it the rest of his life. He was ill many times. He would vomit after he would preach. Blood and guts and everything would come out of him. He would sweat to death when he was preaching because he had fever. But he still was out there. Paul says, I had a bodily ailment and I came to you. We don't know what it is to be a sacrificial Christian, do we? Boy, oh boy, Paul wants us, the Lord wants us to be like him, like he is like Christ. A bodily ailment. I don't know what you have in your life. Um, We all have crooks in our lot. I just finished reading a book. I would say for me, the most important book I've ever read. And I've been a Christian for 46 years. The name of it is called The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. You better get that, Rob Caprera. Write that down. (laughs) It's a... it, it, it's a daily devotion almost. I mean, it's a book of about 140 pages. Uh, it just, it blew me away. Uh, I'm, I'm just, and I went over my notes. I go over my notes and I've took numerous pages of notes on it. It just touched me. Let me share with you some of the thoughts that I think relate to this sermon. And if Brother Fred was here, I know this would touch him as well. Talking about crook in the lot. What does that mean? Every one of us have some kind of crook in our lot. Our brother was sharing about a family member that was shot recently. Or uh, th- things like maybe you have to deal with diabetes in your life. Maybe you have uh, some issue that you're dealing with, some some kind of infirmity. Maybe it's epilepsy. Maybe it's who knows what it is, the loss of a loved one. Maybe you have a, um, a, you were born with a deformity of some kind or, 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 or something that has handicapped you for your life. Maybe you, you can't hear out of one ear or maybe you, you, you have a bad shoulder or something or other. It's a crook in the lot. Maybe something suddenly comes into your life that makes you angry because we're so accustomed to ease and comfort in leisure. That seems to be the American way. When Adam was talking to us about his life circumstances, it's like that belongs in a movie. I mean, that doesn't, I can't, I can't relate to that. I don't understand that. Being separated from my wife and seven children, being where explosions are going off and people are being shot. He actually showed me the wounds in his body from the, from the explosions. Strange stuff. We're not used to it. One of the reasons why we're so uh, up against these crooks in our lot is because God's sovereignty challenges our submission to the yoke that He lays on us. And your lot is like a yoke. And you feel like it hinders you. Paul, we know, had the uh, a thorn in the side. He said, Lord, take this away three times. Three times he prayed, Lord, take it away. And the Lord said three times, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. It is. And Paul says, therefore I take pleasure 
in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We never want to feel weak. We never want to feel injured. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to have losses. We don't know how to deal with a lot of tragedies in our life or traumas. And I'm not saying it's easy. And Thomas Boston in his book doesn't say it's easy. He says, seek God's ways of mending the cross or the crook that's in your lot. If God perhaps may take it away, but he may have a purpose in leaving it. And that's where the patience come in, comes in. Do you have a crook that can't be straightened? Diabetes, body injury, a difficult marriage, death of a loved one, high blood pressure. I mean, the list could go on and on. Terminal disease. All people have crooks in their lot. But the unsaved have nothing to counterbalance the grief of the great weight on them. Praise God we do. Someone said to me the other day, She's going through a whole bunch of stuff. She says, I don't know how people can do it without God. I think we all kind of say that too. We have a difficult time dealing with it with God, let alone dealing with it without God. We've got a shoulder to lean on. We've got a pillow to place our head on. we got a place that we can go for refuge and safety and protection. We have a merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes with all of our infirmities. All people have crooks in their lot. All. The crook is God's fire whereby He tries at times what metal people are made of. It's heaven's touchstone for discovering whether a person is true or a counterfeit Christian. Maybe the COVID's a test. Don't come out. You might get the, the virus. You might die. Whatever. The stakes are high, but what's worth more? The fellowship of God's people and enjoying the communion of the saints and worshiping the true and living God with God's people. I hope those of you that may be watching my live stream that have been enjoying the comfort of home for months and months and months and have absented yourself, I say this humbly and lovingly that you would be feel convicted. Trust God. He will take care of it. We're all still living here. Some have had it worse than others, but God is on the throne. We have to touch Him. Bear patiently under the crook in your lot until your soul is content to see it as a work of God. That takes some crushing sometimes. That takes some grinding, aggravation, irritation, dissatisfaction. Lord, when are you going to relieve me? When are you going to relieve me? Sometimes He lets it remain. That's the tough part, isn't it? But God can bring us peace under circumstances that are even, we think, we're incapable of sustaining. Bear patiently under the crook in your lot until your soul is content to see it as a work of God. That's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. You think what happens to you happens to you by chance? Do you think when Ruth stumbled on Boaz's field, that that was by chance. God was behind that whole thing. She's meeting the mighty man of wealth 
who's going to deliver her from her poverty and her stricken condition. He's going to unite her to herself, marry her, and she's going to have a line that's going to go right through the line of David, right down to Jesus Christ. You never know what a day will bring forth. Our happiness here shouldn't be gauged on how much material possessions we have accumulated, but on a friendly intercourse with heaven. That changes our whole perspective. To die for a believer is gain. That should be consoling. That's, that's why we can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Perfect love casts out fear. The greatest fear that we all have is dying and death. It's the king of terrors. But the king of kings is greater than the king of terrors. So we can say, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he that believes on him will never die. That's the kind of victory we have in Jesus Christ. By affliction, God calls people down from our heights to sit in the dust. Plucking away our gay feathers rubs the varnish and paint from off us creatures so that we will appear more in our native deformity. Now that's a Thomas Boston quote, not mine. I could never come up with that. By affliction, God calls people down from our heights to sit in the dust. Job plucks away, excuse me, um, plucks away our gay feathers, rubs the varnish and paint from off us creatures so that we will appear more in our native deformity. Humbling us. That's one of the goals that God often has in putting crooks in our lot. He may straighten them, other, other times He may leave them as they are. What our responsibility is to say, Thy will be done. The cup that you give me to drink, I'll drink it. Thy will be done if that is your will for me to do. Now Paul goes on and says about, again, these are the antagonizers. These are the Jewsiaders. These are, you could say, the, the cult makers who are invading the Galatian territory he says, they make much of you, but for no good. They want to shut you out so that you may much make, make much, so that you may make much of them. You know, a, a cult leader is a haughty egotist. And he needs your support. He needs your backing to give his head the ego that he needs to have fed so that he can feel good about himself. So if it means putting you in a place of dependence, in a feeling of insecurity away from him, he wants to draw the attention to himself. He doesn't really care about you. And that's what Paul's saying. I came to you with bodily infirmity. I gave my heart to you. I gave my life for you. I bear in my body the, the, the dying of the Lord Jesus. I have the brand marks of Christ. You saw what I did and you loved me so much when you first met me. He says, you were willing to take your eyes out. You were willing to gouge your eyes and give them to me. You were willing to be an, an organ donor. Not dead corpse, but living ones. This is hypothetical, of course. But that's the kind of reception that they gave to Paul. Like Jesus says, He that heareth you, heareth me. 
He that despises you despises me. So they heard, that's why he says, you received me as a messenger, like an angel, even as Christ Jesus. Wow. Paul says to the Thessalonians, when you heard the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually works in you also that believe. We are, we are, we're, we're in divine territory. We're in a holy ground, brothers and sisters, as Christians. It's just a matter of we've got to sense the power of the ark among us in my own personal life. They'll make much of you so that you will accommodate them. Paul wasn't like that. He was a servant to them. He gave his life for them. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip down where Paul says, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the goal. That should be the goal of the pulpit of Sovereign Grace Chapel. That should be the goal of a discipler with one being discipled. That should be the goal for all of us for Christ to be formed in us. If you've been born again, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He lives in you. He says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul says in a prayer in Ephesians, he says, I pray that um, Ephesians 3, that you would be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man. The inner man. Paul is saying, I'm like a pregnant woman who has a baby in the womb and the mother who has that uh, that child in that embryonic state is desires to be sure that she eats well, that she stays healthy, that she sleeps appropriately. She takes care of herself. For what? For the benefit of the baby in the womb. Paul's saying, that's what you are to me. I care that much for you like a mother would care for the baby in their womb. So he's describing them, himself as a child bearer, as a woman bearing a child. That's okay. That's the kind of spirit that we should have. Now, we, we sometimes, and I don't want to ever give the impression, oh, that's Paul, oh, that's John. You're Paul, you're John, you're Peter. We're all made of the same stuff. I think if Paul took the pulpit right here, he, he would say, brothers and sisters. He wouldn't be up there, okay, I'm the most reverend apostle Paul, uh, and I, ha- I want to tell you some things that you don't know. You could never... No, 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 not at all. He's right there in the trenches with us. He knows where we're at because Jesus himself relayed that to those who follow him and to you and I. Jesus says, I came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. He came as a servant. He didn't come as a king. They wanted to crown him. No way. Not yet. I'll let God do the crowning when I get to glory. And he crowns me with many crowns. And I'll wear that royal diadem. And all of his people here on earth, he's still serving us. And we are expected to be like Paul like Peter, like John, like Jesus, serving and loving one another. In the last line he says, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. 
I bet you know somebody in your Christian life, fellow Christian, who's not going on for God. I'm perplexed why some of God's people aren't coming out to worship the Lord. How's that possible? Where is our heart? What does Jesus mean to you? What is it going to be like when we get to glory? Us that are getting older, it's a fact we're thinking about dying. We never thought about that when we were 28 or 38 or maybe 44. Oh, I got a long ways to go, but wait till you get to your 65, 75, 80. You're like, oh, oh, I'm getting near the, I'm getting near the threshold. Now I've got to meet the Lord Jesus. And we perfect love casts out fear. No doubt about it. I'm meeting him as a savior, not as a judge. But I still must give an account of myself to him. So I want to live my life now so that when I reflect back, then I can say, and it can be said to me and to you, well done, my good and faithful what? Servant. Servant. That's what he wants us to be, our servants. What a challenge the Word of God is to all of us. We kind of hang our heads and say, oh man, I'm, I'm really letting the Lord down. I'm not fulfilling the ministry that He's called me to. Every one of you have a ministry. I like to think of everybody as a pastor, pastoress or whatever, in the sense that you have the capability of ministering to someone else, shepherding somebody in a small or bigger sense, whatever it would be, but you are gifted with the power of God's Holy Spirit to be used of the Lord. Let us not take the gift that God has given us and put it in a napkin and wrap it up and bury it. Forget about it. We're all called to be on the mission field. Whatever that means, you've got to interpret it for yourself, whatever your mission field may be. But we're all called. So don't look at the pulpit speakers. Don't look at the elders or the deacons. Look to the Lord. It's the simple that God loves to lead. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. What lessons we can learn from one like Paul, who writes to the Galatians, and his burden for them. I'm perplexed. I wish I could change my tone about you. That's how we should think of our fellow brothers and sisters that are slipping, that are slowly getting... You know, you you put, as they say, you put a frog in the water, uh, lukewarm water, the frog's okay with that. You turn the heat up a little more, it eventually gets accustomed to the temperature. It doesn't feel like it like it really is. That's how it is when people get away from God. They, they get a little effect from the world and it kind of irk, irks them. The, the conscience is feeling oppositional to it, but the longer they stay in it, as the heat goes up, you don't feel it. And all of a sudden now you feel more at home in the world than you do with the things of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that we've been able to glean from the Scriptures things, Lord, that can help us and change us. And, and, and lovingly, Lord, you rebuke us. You are in control of our lot of life. And, Lord, you give crooks to us in our lives. Lord, you can straighten them or you can let them remain. But, Lord, we pray that you would give us a spirit of content. Not contention, but contentment, Lord, with whatever you send our way. Lord, as difficult as it may be, your word tells us that though a man live many years and rejoices in them all, but yet I'm remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. 
Oh Lord, help us to be able to endure those days of darkness that could come sooner or later in different ways, in different ways as well, that Lord, we might see them as your sovereign will over us in our lives. Lord, I want to rebel against that. I don't want to believe that. I want to fight my way as it were out of the bag. But Lord, I know and we should all know, Lord, that you care for us, your children, and what you appoint for us is according to your purpose. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to bear whatever that is in our life that causes us to, to not have all the enjoyments, all of the pleasures, all of the easiness of life that it can provide. But, Lord, you somehow make rough ways on the road of our life that, Lord, there's a purpose we, we, we may never know in this lifetime, but Lord, you know all about it. Help us to con- commit ourselves to you so that, Lord, we can be avid followers and that Christ in us can be formed more and more and even use the words of today that, Lord, we would go out of this place saying, Lord, teach me thy ways and help me, Lord, to be more like you. We ask these things in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.